You may be seated, and I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, we're going to jump in at verse 13 in just a moment. Have you ever noticed that Jesus doesn't often get angry? You know, we see Jesus when we read the Gospels interacting with a lot of different people and different kinds of people throughout the, the Gospels. He interacts with sinners. He interacts with saints, with sick people, with Samaritans, with seekers. He's always meeting them at the point of their need and dealing with them according to who they are. And very seldom in all of those encounters do we see Jesus actually getting angry. But there is one group for whom Jesus reserved His harsh and condemning words. And that is the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And those were the religious leaders of that day in Israel. Now, now think about that for a minute. You would think it would be the opposite. You would think the religious leaders would be the people that Jesus really hung out with and got along with. That they would be the people that Jesus really you know, hung out with and, and stuck up for and, and, and treated in a certain way. But they are the ones for whom He reserved his harshest words. Let me show you what I mean in Matthew chapter 23 and beginning in verse 13. Just listen to the language here. Don't, don't just read the words, but, but listen to the, the, the emotion coming through. Jesus talking to these folks. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. That's strong. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. You say, well, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound by that oath. You blind fools. What is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, well, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, they're bound to that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. Anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! Oh, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guide, you strain at a gnat, and you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You, uh, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. 
And you say, oh, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part in the, with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. Father, we know that these are very difficult words from the Lord Jesus. We pray this morning that you would help us to discern not only what they mean, but how they apply to our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The term self-righteousness can be defined in this way. Piously sure of one's own righteousness. Piously sure of one's own righteousness. Pious meaning to be religious or, or devout. In other words, it's somebody who is religious, they're devout in some way, and because of that, they think that they are a righteous person. This is a great description of the Pharisees, isn't it? There's no, no humility with these folks. There's no sense of need in their own lives. The law of God doesn't create within them a sense of their own inadequacy. On the contrary, they use it to promote their own self-righteousness. These are people who use God. And they use the things of God to make themselves look better. They don't practice religion out of their own sense of devotion to God, but rather out of a sense of superiority. I am better than you. Look at me. Look at what I have done. Tim Keller in his book entitled The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Now, just think about that title. Self-righteousness is over on this side of the continuum. It says, look at me, look at what I've done. And Tim Keller's written a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Don't look at me. In that book, he says this. When I was at school, my mother kept saying things like, you know, honey, you ought to join the chess club. And I would say, Mom, I hate chess. Yes, I know, she would say, but it would look so good on your college application. She would try again. Don't they feed the homeless and hungry downtown every Saturday morning? Why don't you volunteer for that? Mom, I'd say, I hate that kind of thing. And I would get the same response. I know, honey, but it would look so good on your college application. So at school, I did all kinds of things that I had absolutely no interest in doing for themselves. I was simply putting together a resume. This is what our egos are doing all the time, he says. Doing jobs we have no pleasure in, doing diets we take no pleasure in, doing all kinds of things, not for the pleasure of doing them, but because we're trying to put together an impressive curriculum vitae. By comparing ourselves to other people and trying to make ourselves look better than others, we are trying to create a self-esteem resume because we are desperate to fill our own sense of inadequacy and emptiness. And that's what legalistic, self-righteous religion is all about. Using God to make ourselves look better. Filling our own religious resume so that we look good. So no wonder that these are the people for whom Jesus reserved His most outspoken condemnation. This morning we're going to start a series entitled The Jesus Factor. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at Jesus and how he interacted with different kinds of people that he encountered throughout his earthly ministry. And from that we're going to discover how we should respond to these same kinds of people that we encounter in our own life. Because here's what I know. The way we do church and the way we live out the Christian life is sometimes different, contrary to the way Jesus lived out his own life. And it shouldn't be that way. Because if we believe, and it is true, that God 
God's purpose for us is to conform us into the image of Christ, to make us like Jesus in our character, then it would make sense that we need to explore how Jesus responded to people that he encountered in this fallen world. And so as we begin the study this morning, we're going to look how Jesus reacted to those who used God and who used religion. These are self-righteous people. These are the people that know all the answers. You get these people in a Sunday school class, boy, and they can snap off the answers. They know it. They're very religious. They're at church every time the doors are open, and they have a long list of do's and don'ts that look very godly. But something is missing. For all of their religious activity, for all of their piety, there is no genuine relationship with God. Are you familiar with the term trophy wife? It's a term in our popular culture. You know what it means? It's about... An older man, usually on his second marriage, who marries a younger, attractive woman, and she becomes his trophy wife. And if this is genuinely that situation, you've got to ask yourself, why does he do that? Why does he do that? Out of love? No. He uses her to make himself look better in the eyes of others. If it's really a trophy wife situation, that's, that's what it's about, to make himself look better in the eyes of others. And it actually makes a mockery of marriage. In the same way, self-righteous religion uses God and makes a mockery of true religion. So this morning, I want us to look at three reasons why we, like Jesus, should not tolerate self-righteousness in the church. And here's the first reason. Because self-righteous people lead others away from God. You and I should not tolerate self-righteousness in the church Because self-righteous people lead others away from God. We see this in the first two woes. By the way, when Jesus says woe, he's not trying to get his donkey to stop. I don't want you to misunderstand that. When he says woe, he's pronouncing a curse. And you don't want Jesus saying woe to you, right? It's not a good thing. It's opposite of what he said in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's pronouncing a blessing. Here he's pronouncing a curse. And Jesus could not have used stronger language. And we see why when we begin to walk our way through this passage. In verse 13, he says to these these religious leaders, you shut the door of heaven in the faces of people who are trying to get in. In verse 15, he says that having won one convert, they make that person twice as much a child of hell as they themselves are. In other words, he says you go around, you find somebody, you convince them of their need for God, and then you steer them away from a genuine relationship with God. You get them involved in all kinds of dead religion and dead religious activities that does nothing to save their souls. And listen, this has been the history of the institutionalized church for far too often throughout the ages. This is what the Reformation was all about. In the 16th century, the church's doctrine of salvation had become so corrupt and so twisted, it no longer reflected the truth of the gospel. People were enslaved to a system of works. People were enslaved to religious leaders who said that it was through the church you had to be saved. And of course, if you're the religious leader of the church, man, that gives you a lot of power, right? took a young monk named Martin Luther to challenge the doctrine of salvation by works. And before Luther came along, it got so bad that the church was actually selling salvation. You could pay for salvation. This is how it worked. If you had a loved one that died, and they just weren't quite good enough to go to heaven under this system of works, 
They would go to a place called purgatory. Purgatory doesn't exist. It's not a biblical doctrine. But it was a doctrine of the Catholic Church. And they would go in this doctrine to a place called purgatory. So if you wanted your loved one, if you wanted to help them get out of purgatory and into heaven, you could pay the church. And the church would ensure that they were then transferred out of purgatory and into heaven. In fact, they had a little saying that said, When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That makes a great fundraiser, doesn't it? I mean, CJ, we could pay for youth camp for the next 10 years by selling salvation. But I wonder how many people were led away from the truth by that nonsense. How many people thought they were good with God because they had jumped through all the right religious hoops that the religious leaders were holding out for them to jump through? You see, self-righteousness is rooted in this idea that, that my religious activity or my, my good works or my morality, my moral behavior makes me right with God. I had a chance this, this past week to talk with a young man and, and, and to share the gospel of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. And as I was talking to this young man, and as I was talking about the fact that it's, it's, it's because of our faith in Christ, it's because of our belief in Him that we are saved and not through works, he said this to me. He says, but isn't it both? Yeah, you've got to believe in God, but don't you also have to, to live the right kind of life for God to save you? Doesn't He meet you halfway? He said those words to me. Doesn't He meet you halfway? And I told him what I'll tell you now. That kind of thinking is deadly. A couple of years ago, there was a story that was carried by a number of news outlets. Here's the headline on one of those news outlets. Drug-deluding pharmacists gets 30 years. Let me read a little bit of it to you. A pharmacist who diluted chemotherapy drugs for thousands of cancer patients was sentenced to the maximum 30 years Thursday after tearful witnesses told a judge the scheme had cost them precious days with their loved ones. Robert R. Courtney showed no emotion as the judge announced his sentence. Your crimes, quote, your crimes are a shock to the civilized conscience, U.S. District Judge Ordy Smith told him. They are beyond understanding. Courtney, who was arrested in August of 2001, pled guilty in February to 20 counts of adulterating, misbranding, and tampering with the cancer drugs Toxol and Gemzar. But Courtney admitted in his plea agreement that he had been diluting drugs since 1992, affecting as many as 4,200 patients and 98,000 prescriptions. Muffled sobs could be heard in the courtroom Thursday, as witnesses testified, Stephen Coates showed a picture of his wife, Evelyn Johnny Coates, calling her my rock and inspiration. She died of cancer last year at age 53, shortly before the investigation became public. What that pharmacist did is no worse than what self-righteous people do when they try to mix grace and works. Because when you mix grace and works, it becomes a deadly combination. Look at what Paul said. I put it in your notes. Romans chapter 11, verse 6. But if it is by grace, and he's talking about salvation, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Listen, folks, we should not tolerate a church or members in a church or a Sunday school teacher or a pastor who dilutes the truth of the gospel. We should tolerate that no more than we should tolerate a pharmacist who dilutes cancer drugs. Both are deadly. This is the first reason why we should not tolerate self-righteousness in the church. Because self-righteous people lead others away from God. 
Here's the second reason why we should not tolerate self-righteousness in the church. Self-righteous people use the law to justify themselves. We see this in the next two woes, beginning in verse 16. Jesus talks about how the Pharisees played games with the law. And they would say things like, well, listen, you know, if you say you're going to do something and you swear an oath and you swear that oath by the temple, and eh, you really don't have to keep your word. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, then you're stuck. You've got you to do that. Or if you swear by the altar, eh, you really don't have to follow through with that. But if you swear by the sacrifice or the gift that's on the altar, eh, then, then you've you got to do what you're going to do. Right? Why would anybody come up with that kind of nonsense? Why would anybody create that, that kind of scheme? Let me ask it in, in contemporary terms, because I don't know how many of you have been swearing by the temple or the gold in the temple lately. So let me ask it in contemporary terms. Why would anybody come up with a scheme that says, well, if I say I'm going to do something, I've got to do it unless I've got my fingers crossed. Now I don't have to do it because I crossed my fingers. So what? Right? Why would somebody come up with that kind of nonsense? Because they want to justify their own bad behavior. That's why. When a, a, a legal loophole that says I can behave in a way that is wrong, but still appear and convince myself that I am righteous. Righteousness means that you do what you said you will do. It means that you honor your word. You, your word is your bond. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they weren't interested in righteousness. They were interested in giving themselves some wiggle room. That way they could appeal to the loophole and feel justified in their own self-righteousness. You know, it's kind of fun to watch kids, little kids, play games. And one of the reasons is because they change the rules in the middle of the game. You ever notice that? Right? And if you get a kid that's kind of a strong personality in a group of kids and they're playing, no pointing fingers, Rob. You get a kid... <laughs> listen, in church, we only point at ourselves, okay? If, <laughs> but if you, if you get a kid that's kind of a strong personality in the group, right, and, and, and the game's not really going his way, he's going to change the rules in a way that are to his advantage, right? So he's going to be playing. Somebody says, Johnny, you're out of bounds. No, no, the boundary line's not here anymore. It's over there, Right? And he does that because he wants an advantage. He doesn't like having to be restricted to these boundaries. Well, the, that's, that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're not interested in conforming themselves to the nature of God. They're not interested in holiness in their lives. They're interested in justifying themselves. So they just move the boundary line. They create a loophole. And that's what we see in the next woe, beginning in verse 23. The Pharisees feel superior to others. Because not only do they tithe, that's giving a 10%, not only do they tithe or give 10% of their income, which is what, you know, the run-of-the-mill religious person would do, the just, you know, average religious person, but they're not that. No, no, no. They don't just tithe their income. They, they give all the way down to giving 10% of the spices that they grow in their garden. Now listen, if religious activity impresses you, if you think you're really something because of the religious activity that you're doing, then this is something that, that, that's really going to make you feel like you're righteous in your life, that like you're a righteous person. Look at me. Not only am I a tither, but I will tithe the spices on my spice rack. And it might even distract you from the fact that your heart is not where it needs to be with God. You see, the Pharisees missed the point of the law. They totally missed it. The law was never intended to show us how to be righteous. 
God didn't give the law and say, well, if you can do these things, blah, 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 you're a righteous person. No, no. The law was given as a light of truth to shine into our hearts, to shine into our lives, and to expose the sinfulness of our own lives. That's why he gave us the law. And that's why Jesus points out that despite the fact that these guys are excellent tithers, listen, they would have fit well in a Southern Baptist church. Despite the fact that they were excellent tithers, they got an F in things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Instead of letting the law convict them of their sins, they turned it into a checklist to justify themselves. They misused the rules to make themselves look good. And so do we. We do it too. Listen, oh, our, our list may not be as sophisticated as theirs. It may not be as detailed. I mean, these guys were, were experts at this kind of thing. But we, we do the same thing as well, don't we? we? We tend to elevate in importance those things that we're kind of good at in our lives. And we kind of de-elevate in importance or devalue the things that, that we're not quite so good at in our spiritual lives. If we're givers, well, boy, then giving becomes one of the most important signs of real godliness. If we're faithful in serving in ministry, then, then serving is the mark to look for. If we get up early every morning and have a quiet time, then we might be tempted to think that's what real godliness looks like. If we're at church, every time the doors are open, then attendance becomes something that's very important to us because it makes us look righteous. It, it, it drives this own sense of our own self-righteousness. And when we do that, we turn these genuine acts of devotion and obedience, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. We ought to be givers, right? We ought to serve and ministry. We ought to be here participating in the life of the church. We ought to spend time with God in devotion. But when we, when we take those genuine acts of devotion and, and we turn them into acts of self-righteousness, look how good I am. What it does is it blinds us to sin in other areas of our lives. It blinds us to the reality that there may be other areas in our lives that we are not right with God. There's a reason that Jesus calls these people blind guides. He says that a number of times. Because their own self-righteousness has blinded them to the sin in their lives. Self-righteousness has no place in the church of Jesus Christ because self-righteous people abuse God's law. Let me give you the last reason why we should not tolerate self-righteousness in the church. Self-righteous people focus on appearance rather than godliness. Self-righteous people focus on appearance rather than godliness. You know what a hypocrite is? Jesus calls these people hypocrites seven times in these, in these verses. Let me tell you what it's not. A hypocrite is not somebody who says that she believes one thing and does another. That's not a hypocrite. In other words, if somebody says, I'm a Christian, and because I'm a Christian, I believe that lying is wrong, and then that person's at work the next week, and, and she's getting behind on her work, she's not able to keep up with the workload, she's under pressure, and her boss comes to her and says, hey, how are you doing on that project that's coming up, that's due? How are you doing on that? And under the pressure, that person says, well, you know what, I, I'm, a, I'm a little behind, but here's why, because I had this emergency, she lies. I had this emergency at home I had to deal with, it kind of threw my schedule off a little bit, if you can give me a little more time, I'll, I'll get it done. All right? That, that's not hypocrisy. That's sinfulness, to be sure. That's wrong, that's something that needs to be dealt with, but that's not hypocrisy, and here's why. Because she really believes it's wrong to lie. 
As a Christian, she knows what she did is wrong. She's not living up to what she knows to be true. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be one thing, but is actually another. It's someone who creates an appearance that is not consistent with who they really are. And this is the inevitable outcome of somebody living a self-righteous life. Because they've got to maintain the appearance of righteousness at all times. Because, I mean, if you don't, then you've got a problem, right? If you're, if you're depending on your own righteousness to make you right before God you, and to make you appear right before this, you've got to maintain this appearance. And this is the point of the last three woes that Jesus gives. He says that these, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, these teachers of the law, he says, you're like a cup. And people look at the cup and they say, oh, look how shiny and pristine that is. Oh, it's wonderful. What a wonderful cup. He says, but you look on the inside and it's full of all these putrid things. It's rotten. He says, they're like tombs. If you've ever been to Israel, the, the, the tombs are above the ground there. They don't put them below. The, they're above the ground. He says, you're like a tomb and you're, you're whitewashed. You're painted white. And you, oh, it looks so pretty. It looks so nice. But there's nothing but death on the insides. And he says they pretend to honor the prophets of old sent by God. Oh, if we had been there when those prophets lived, we wouldn't have killed them like our ancestors. And he says, no, you're no better than the people who murdered those prophets. See, here's the deal. It's all a show. Self-righteousness is all a show. And what better place for a show of righteousness and hypocrisy than at church? I'm not talking about people who are, who are struggling with a sin in your life that you're dealing with. I mean, I'm not talking about that. Because we're all, at some point in our life, at that place. I'm talking about hiding who you really are so that others will think well of you. And if too many of us do that, we become a church full of phonies. Now listen, when I say that we should not tolerate self-righteousness in the church, I'm not just talking about the self-righteousness of other people. We should not tolerate ourselves being self-righteous people in the church. I think there is a biblical way for us to deal with Pharisees in the church, and I think we need to. We have an obligation to not allow people who are Pharisaical and self-righteous to come in and to poison the church. But this morning, why don't we deal with the Pharisee that we might find in all of us first? Let's start here. So how do we do that? How do we deal with it? Let me give you three ways. First, be true to the gospel of grace. Be true to the keep your eyes on Jesus as the beginning and the end of your salvation. Salvation is holy and completely the work of God. We are grateful recipients and nothing more. Let us not arrogantly assume that we can do anything to make ourselves right with God on our own effort. And let us not teach others that as well. Second, don't play games with the law of God. Don't pick and choose things from the Bible and create your own little convenient checklist that makes you look better than you are or feel better about yourself. Let the law do what it's intended to do. It's intended to show you where your life doesn't match up with the holy nature of God. And when I talk about the law of God, I'm talking about the moral law. I'm not talking about the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, the animal sacrifice. I'm talking about the moral law of God. It's intended to show you where your life doesn't conform 
to the nature of God. The law is intended to show us that apart from the power of God, we have no hope of living a righteous life. And then third, don't be fake. Oh, you don't have to confess your every sin to your Sunday school class every week. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into um, I've sinned more than you competition, right? It's not what we need to do. But neither do we want to put on a mask and pretend to be somebody that we're not. It's good to have a few Christian friends that you can talk to who know you and who know your hurts and your struggles in your life. It keeps us real. And I'll be the first one to stand before you this morning and to tell you I am a sinner saved by grace and nothing more. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a sinner saved by grace and nothing more. But let me tell you something else, and this is going to sound a little hard, but I say it with love. If you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if somehow you've been counting on your own goodness that your good works outweigh your bad works or some sort of scheme like that, let me tell you this. You need to hear it. You are a sinner bound for hell. You say, wow, pastor, that's a little, a little harsh, isn't it? No, it's not. It's no more harsh than your doctor telling you you have cancer and you need to deal with it. How loving would it be for him not to give you hard news because he didn't want to upset you? You need to know this morning, out of love I'm telling you, this is your spiritual condition. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are lost and separated from God. And if you die in that condition, you will spend eternity separated from God. That's the truth. And there's no amount of good works. There's no amount of religious activity. There's no amount of, of, of do's and don'ts. You can check off a checklist that's going to make you right with God. You can no more throw a rock from Alachua and hit the North Pole than you could be good enough to be made right with God. That's the bad news. Now let me tell you the good news. I, I know several of you have been to the doctor and you've heard those words. You've got cancer. And then you've heard the following words, but we can treat it. There's a cure. You will survive. Here's the treatment for the spiritual cancer called sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place. He paid the penalty for your sins. Because Jesus didn't live a self, he did live a self-righteous life. He was a righteous person. He was the only person to live this life completely free from sin. And he's willing to exchange his righteousness for your sinfulness. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. He took your sin so that you can take his righteousness. It's like a transaction. You trade with him. And when you do that by putting your faith in him, what God now sees in your life, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then He begins to work in your heart so that you can live out that life that He has called you to live. But we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. This morning, if you've come right up to that line of faith and you're ready to step over and put your faith in Jesus Christ, as I do almost every Sunday morning, I want to give you an opportunity this morning. I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads for just a moment. And if that's you, if you're at that place in your life, you say, that's me, I'm ready, I'm there, I understand what you're saying, I just need to respond. This is how you can do it. By offering this prayer to God, and it's a simple prayer, it's not a magical prayer, you just make it your own, from your heart to His. You say something like this, Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done things that are wrong. But I know that Jesus Christ died for me. 
And I believe that if I put my trust in Him, You will save me and forgive me of all of my sin. And so this morning, the best I know how, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for making me your child. Help me to live as you've called me to live in your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Father, I pray for anybody this morning who has turned that corner, who has left the life of self-righteousness and entered the life of your righteousness through faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would convince them of the truth of the Scripture that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and that you have done that for them this morning. Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning who name you as Savior and Lord. Lord, it it, it is a part of our fallen condition if we're not careful, even as Christians, to start sliding back into a self-righteous mindset, to believe that somehow the things that we do really do make us right with you, or you love us a little bit more because of how good we are. Father, convict us of that nonsense. And help us to live fully in your grace as genuine people with all the warts that come along with that. And Father, help us to be gracious to one another. Lord, let us not shoot our wounded. But Lord, let us be a hospital for those who are hurting and sick with sin. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.